your Bibles now to Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis chapter 4, as we continue our study in this book, and this morning we'll cover verses 16 through 26. Genesis chapter 4. This section of the Word of God will teach us that while the comforts of life are important, they are insignificant when compared to the priority of worshiping God. In the first 15 verses of Genesis chapter 4, we have seen that sin is not benign. Our Lord himself explained to Cain, either we master it or it will master us. It's not benign, it's malignant In this dispensation, the mastery of sin comes, of course, through a moment-by-moment submission to the ministry of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Each of us, at the moment that we're saved, actually many things happen. Our sins are forgiven. We're granted eternal life. We are declared righteous. But one of the things that happens is that God the Holy Spirit takes us and places us into the body of Christ. That's That's where Paul gets this term, in Christ, in Christ Jesus. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. In Romans chapter 8, at the end of that chapter he says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. So see, Paul begins that chapter, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, And he ends the chapter by saying, there's nothing, absolutely nothing, that once you're in Christ Jesus can separate you from the love of God. So once we have this positional relationship, it cannot be broken. And that's something that happens to us at salvation. And then something else happens to us at salvation, because once we're saved, we still, it's not like our lives are over. We have the responsibility to do good works. But we can't do good works. We can't worship like we need to worship. We can't worship in a way that honors God unless God helps us. So each of us, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, are now the temple of God because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. We don't need a temple. I would love to have a building, by the way, that's ours permanently. But you know what? You brought your own church building with you today because you brought God with you. And this doesn't mean I don't want you to give to the building fund. Feel free if you would like to. <laughs> Please feel free. But, but you, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells you. And it's that indwelling Holy Spirit that allows you, for example, to say no to sin. It's that indwelling Holy Spirit that motivates you to do good, that produces the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, and all the other things that Paul mentions in Ephesians chapter 5. So when we say that either we dominate sin or it's going to dominate us, we're not talking about doing that from our sinful natures. That would be an impossibility. Sin's not going to dominate sin. Something else has to dominate sin, and it's the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit that will help us to do that. Now, this is so important. This was, a, this was a huge message from the first 15 verses, that sin is not benign. We can't just play around with it. We think we can. And I would dare say that everybody in this room has been through a time in their life when they thought they could just dabble in sin and get away with it. I have, but I, and I bet you have too. Well, they, well you know, it's, it's, I know it's sinful, but it can't be that bad. It looks awfully fun. Maybe God doesn't really want me to have fun, so I'm going to have a little fun and just see what it's like. And you kind of you saunter over to the river of sin. And you don't want to jump head first in, right? Because you know that's going to get you in trouble. You'll drown. But you just stick your little toe in there. You say, boy, that feels good. Then you stick your foot in there. And by, the time you, by the time you know what's hit you, you're swimming in it. That's what Jesus told Cain. 
You've got to get them. You've got to master this right now. Cain should have confessed it right then. He should have repented and moved away from it right then, but he didn't. And look what happened to him. He let his disappointment turn into anger, then turn into a raging hatred of someone who hadn't done anything to him. Cain was mad at God. He wasn't mad at his brother. <laughs> he killed his brother, though. Sin dominated Cain. And we're going to see the results of that today in today's message. After murdering his brother Cain, after murdering his brother Abel, Cain refused to confess. He refused to either confess the sin or to take responsibility for it. And instead, he claimed that God's punishment was too severe. We studied that two weeks ago before Dr. Leitner was here. In an act of mercy, God protected him. Now, mercy is different than grace. We, we say those two words together, and they're certainly related. But if you want to know a simple way to, to remember the difference between grace and mercy, here it is. Grace is God giving us a blessing that we don't deserve. Salvation, for example. God gives us in grace, he gives us salvation, that free gift. That's grace. Mercy, while related, is ever so slightly different. The way mercy is portrayed in the scriptures is God not giving us something that we do deserve. You see, we deserve condemnation and he doesn't give it to us. We deserve to be wiped out and he doesn't give it to us. That's mercy. And oftentimes we, get, we are graced out and we are the recipients of mercy at the same time. But here, in an act of mercy... See, God is not going to give Cain something that he does deserve. It's actually a gracious act, too, because he does give him something he doesn't. But primarily in an act of mercy, God protected him, protects Cain by some mark or by some sign that would be a deterrent to anyone who might attempt to take vengeance. Now, this is where we finished off last time. We were running a little bit behind, as we do sometimes. And so we had to, to go over this portion fairly quickly. But God marks Cain in some way so that no one would take vengeance upon him. This is verse 15. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken upon him sevenfold. Remember that number because it's going to come up back in our text again today. If anyone took vengeance upon Cain, the, the, the Lord would punish them seven times what they took vengeance on Cain. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain. It could also be translated as a mark for Cain, lest anyone finding him should slay him. So, God shows mercy to Cain by not giving him the full punishment that he deserves. He also shows grace by blessing him with this particular sign. And this is where we ended up last time. The sign or the mark of Cain has been a hotbed for discussion. But of it, listen carefully, of it we know nothing. The Jews believe that Cain himself was somehow the sign and others have speculated over the course of history that God made some kind of mark uh, on Cain's body, perhaps on his forehead. But it is unfruitful to spend too much time in speculation over an issue that's not revealed. In fact, and maybe you know what some of the proposals are, but in fact some of the proposals about what the mark of Cain was have been less than kind, and probably a bit racist, if we were to be honest. So it's best just to move on to other issues on which the text is more specific. 
this is a good time to say this, it's been my experience that far too often we as Bible-believing, Bible-studying Christians, far too often we focus upon certain details, certain aspects in the text, or from a biblical narrative, that are not germane to the message of a passage. You see, when a, when a student of the Word of God, when a, a pastor or a teacher decides to present a particular passage, we, we, we dig into the passage, we, we consider all the details that are in that passage, and, and we study them. Some of those are grammatical details, some of those are historical details, some of those are theological details, and we study all of the details that God has revealed in that passage, and then we put those details together and come up with what I would call the message statement of a passage. The message statement of a passage is what the passage is all about. If you had to summarize it in one sentence, what is this passage about? And I've already, I've already played my cards with you this morning. I've already told you what I think the message statement of today's message is. Did you catch it? While the comforts of life are important, remember that? We said it right in the beginning. They're insignificant compared with the priority of worshiping God. You see, when we take all these ten verses together, or verses 16 through 26, when we take these verses together and all the details are aligned properly and studied properly, that's what God the Holy Spirit, I believe, wants us to know from this passage. Now, sometimes we have a tendency, because we are human, we have a tendency to want to focus, perhaps, on a detail that's not there. And when we do, we miss the beauty of the passage. For example, in the last section, the message being that sin is not benign, it's very malignant, we have to master it or it's going to master us, there, there are many details that the text tells us about. But one thing that the text doesn't tell us about is what the mark of Cain was. You know Why? Because God didn't think it was any of our business. It's not germane to the argument. If it was, he would have told us. And there are many other things in the Bible that are that way too. So as your pastor, I would encourage you. I would, I would encourage you with all the love that I can muster. And all the patience, I hope. Because I'm supposed to instruct you with great patience. Uh, Will taught that not too long ago. And I cringed when he did. Because it's not just with, not just with patience, but with great patience. But, but I encourage you, when we study a biblical passage, focus in on the details that we do know. That's what God chose to reveal. Don't get in arguments about a detail that the text tells us nothing of. And, as long as I'm on a roll, my wife's sitting on the back row, so I'm not even going to look over where she goes like this, just cut it. As, as long as we're on the subject... It's no, it does no good to send an email on Monday morning, Tuesday morning, arguing about a detail that's not here. You know what I'm going to write you? I don't know. And then you're going to get real frustrated. Well, why doesn't he know? Because the text doesn't tell us. I don't know what the mark of Cain was. And neither do you. And neither does anybody else. If you ever read an article that's dogmatic about what the mark of Cain was, then make a note as to who wrote that article and avoid them in the future. Because it's bad theological method, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's bad theological method. God is telling us something through this passage. And in the last passage, I told you it was sin is not benign. It's malignant. And either we master it or it masters us. It doesn't tell us what the mark of Cain was. Now, I'm just using that as an example. You can fill in your own blanks a bit later. And I don't care if a study Bible tells you what the mark of Cain was. Study Bibles are not, in, the notes in the study Bible are not inspired. 
Uh, I know that we, with all due respect, Dr. Ryrie and Dr. Schofield and, and others, they're not inspired. They're just someone's opinion. So let's just be careful. I'm going to always make time. Always make time to give you an honest answer to an honest question. But I'm here to help you learn, and I'm here to help you grow. But debating questions that are unanswerable doesn't help you learn, and it doesn't help you grow. In fact, in fact, arguing over details that are not even present in the text is a hindrance to your spiritual growth. It's not a help, because when we do that, then we miss the beauty of what God is saying to us in this text. So, just a word to the wise, or as the New Testament says, he who has an ear, let him hear. In the remainder of this chapter, we find Cain's descendants focusing on the building of civilization, and then just in a couple of verses, we see the descendants of Seth focusing upon worship. So the descendants of Cain, now we haven't met Seth yet, we'll meet him in this passage, the descendants of Cain are going to focus upon making life easier for themselves. And the descendants of Seth are going to focus upon worship. And I won't have to make, it, uh, I won't have to make too many dogmatic statements about which of the two is appropriate. I hope you can see without me making that. So here we learn in this section of the Word of God that while the comforts of life are important, the comforts of life are insignificant when we compare them to the priority of worshiping God. I'm really happy. I don't know who it was that invented the remote control for the television. I've got one of these remote controls that you can turn the TV on and off, and you can switch the stations with it. You can do the volume. You've got one, too. And you don't ever have to leave your chair. I can even switch, I can even switch over to the DVD player. I can, I can DVR something. All from that one little remote. And I love that little remote. Matter of fact, it makes me really mad when I can't find it. And I'm usually the one that's lost it. And he said, you put it over there, remember? No, but, I, but I'm glad to find it again. It's a comfort of life. But you know what? Compared to worshiping of, the worship of God, it's rather insignificant, isn't it? Now, I picked one of the most silly examples that I could pick to make a point. But all the comforts of life are that way. We're glad that we have them. And no one is saying that we should disregard the comforts of life. That's, that's what a group up in Pennsylvania really kind of does. They disregard the, the comforts of life. They won't, uh, they won't drive a car. They will drive a horse and buggy because they feel like that's um, less comfortable for them. So they would be more spiritual if they were to do that. They won't use some modern implements, but they use ancient implements. I understand why. And in, in one sense, way back in the back of my mind, I see some nobility in that because I know the motivation behind why they're doing it, but that's missing the point. The point is, no matter what the comforts of life are, they are insignificant compared to worship. And what we'll see, as we briefly go through this passage, is that the descendants of Cain, which in, in one way is the unrighteous line, although there will be righteous and unrighteous in both of these lines, but the descendants of Cain are not so much focused on worship. They're not so much focused on getting their life right before God. They're focused on making this life more comfortable while they're here. The other night on, on Fox News, late in the evening, I was watching um, O'Reilly. And O'Reilly interviewed Doc, Richard Dawkins, the Oxford um, gentleman who's, uh, who's an atheist. And it really was sad for me to watch that interview because it was, Dawkins did, I thought, such a, a poor job of defending atheism. Somebody else might could have done a better job that night for their side. It was, uh, uh, O'Reilly's not exactly... 
known for being a spiritual giant himself, and he, he pretty much destroyed Dawkins' arguments without too much effort. But I was sad for Dawkins. Because, you see, Dawkins believes that once he takes his last breath, that's it. There is no afterlife at all. So if that's what you really believe, I could see why you'd want to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we shall die. Why not just, why not just throw it all into this life? But, my friends, there is a life after this one. So we don't need to throw it all into this life. We do need to do something with this life, to be sure. And I'm for the comforts of life. This is not a sermon that's against the comforts of life. It's a sermon that preaches the message of this passage that says that compared to the worship of God, they're insignificant. You see the two. Compared to God, they're insignificant. So if you're an atheist, I see why you would want to do that. So we understand why Cain's descendants do this. But there's no justification for it. So, verses 16 through 24 trace the line of Cain through its full development. And some of these are names and genealogies, and we won't necessarily have to go over all of them, but what's happening in verses 16 through 24 is Cain's line is being developed. And then verses 25 and 26, in these two short verses, trace the development of someone who is to be introduced in verse 25, and that's a man by the name of Seth. In verses 16 and 17, just for the context, let's read these. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And by the way, this is one of those trivial things. All we know about Nod is that it's east of Eden. Don't know anything else about it, so, so no sense in discussing it, all right? Now you get, you get the point. And Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. Cain built this city. So, we have no specific information on the area of Node, but it's an area where Cain begins a civilization. The key thing to note from these two verses, if we recall back to our study last time, remember Jesus had told Cain, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, had told Cain that your punishment is you're going to be a vagrant and wander upon the earth for the rest of your life. That's your punishment. Remember that? And remember Cain said, this is too much for me to bear. He's a farmer. How can a farmer... Be a vagrant and wander. You never get to grow the crops. If you're, the, if you're a hunter, maybe you could do that. But not Cain. He was a farmer. So isn't it odd, as soon as Cain goes out from the presence of the Lord, you see what we see him do? He forms a civilization. He's, he's still not repentant. He hasn't accepted his punishment. He's doing whatever he can to make life easier upon himself. The text never gives us one hint anywhere in here that even after he's punished, Cain says, you know what? Lord, you were right shouldn't have murdered my brother. I confess that sin. I'm going to place my faith in you. Doesn't ever say that. Instead, what he does is he tries to make the best with what he has. And again, in, in one sense, maybe that's a noble pursuit, but it's missing the point entirely. It would have been much better for Cain to focus on the worship of God, but he doesn't do that. So he builds this city and names it after his son. Apparently, when we name things after our children or after someone else, when we name a building after someone, we're wanting to remember them, are we not? We're wanting to memorialize them. So he names this city after his son. He has still not submitted himself to God's sovereignty. And in, in, in contrast to that, he, he seems determined to make life comfortable for himself apart from God. One more time, because I don't want you to misunderstand this. There is nothing wrong with having a comfortable life. I love my comfortable life. Sometimes I'll go to different mission fields and, and I just wonder how people live like that. Next March, 
I am scheduled to go to Vijwada, India, and then from there I'll travel to Manila in the Philippines and another city that I can't recall right now in the Philippines to do pastor's conferences in both those places. And then I'll fly home. I think I'm going to fly all the way around the world. First time I've done that on an individual trip. But you know, in the last 10 days, Vijwada, India has almost been completely destroyed by rains that are the heaviest rains that they say they've seen in over, actually in hundreds of years, not just in 100 years, in, in hundreds of years. Vijwada, India is not that luxurious of a place to begin with. There, it's, it has a certain aroma to it because they have a lot of open sewage in Vijwada, in that whole state, that area. And you can imagine if there's flooding and open sewage, can you imagine what life is going to be like over there for those people? So believe me, I thank the Lord that I was privileged to be born in the United States of America. And, and I have comfort. We have something as simple as we take for granted is in, in, indoor sewage, underground sewage, not open sewage. Something as simple as that. Manila in the Philippines, the other location that I'm going to in March, it's almost been destroyed as well. Two hurricanes, two typhoons back to back. They had enormous flooding and death after the first one. Before they could even recover from the first one, just days later, another one comes in. The pastor of the conference that I'll be speaking at, the one that's setting up, hasn't been heard from since. So we don't know if he's even still there. But Manila in the Philippines wasn't that luxurious of a city to begin with. I'm glad we have comfort. The, the, the point of this passage is not that we should take away our comforts. It's that we should keep them in the right priority. So he has not submitted himself to God. He's making himself more comfortable instead of repenting. There's no problem with comfort. There's no problem with building the city, per se. There's no problem with civilization, per se. The problem is doing so apart from the blessing of God. And that's what Cain's descendants are doing it. They're doing it as a priority over the worship of God and the submission to God. And the tra- this contrast will become crystal clear in just a moment as we do the last two verses. Here's another, by the way. Uh, some people will ask, a lot of study notes ask, where did Cain get his wife? And some people, you know, a lot of unbelievers say, gotcha. There must be a problem here with this Bible. There's an error right here. Well, that can be answered on a couple of different levels. Let me just answer it this way first. If that was an error that we were trying to avoid, don't you think at some point over the last 3,500 years someone would have corrected that and would have written in there where Cain got his wife? If it was something we were trying to avoid, there's been plenty of time to correct that. But it doesn't need to be corrected because in the next chapter, chapter 5, verse 4, we're going to learn that Adam had other sons and daughters. The other sons and daughters just aren't germane to this story. So that's why they're not mentioned here. Cain married one of his sisters. Or perhaps since we think great gaps in time occurred here, it, it could have been another relative that's more distant. So this is not a gotcha for the atheists. There's a perfectly legitimate explanation as to where Cain got his wife. In verses 18 through 24, we go through several generations. In fact, four generations later... A man named Lamech is born, and we notice immediately that he is going to take two wives. Go down to verse 19. And Lamech took to himself two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zilhah. If you'll recall from our studies previously, God ordained marriage to be between one man and one woman. 
Not between one man and two women. Not between one man and several women. And, and later on, some of the, even the heroes of the Bible will have more than one wife. That's not something we should emulate. They were sinning when they did it. And by the way, in King David's situation, caused him a lot more trouble than it was worth. Didn't it? If he had done it God's way, it wouldn't have been that kind of trouble. But marriage is between one man and one woman. And because we live in the culture that we live in, I've got to say it, and I better say it before they make it illegal for me to say it, it's not between one man and another man. It's not between one woman and another woman. Not biblically. It could be that way legally. And we're not certainly not asking you to, to do anything unkind or untoward to anybody that's in that situation. We should pray for them, not try to do violence against them. So I want to certainly be on record as, as saying that. It's, it's actually non-Christian at all to do violence against somebody for that purpose. But one man and one woman. And now what do we see? First we see Cain refusing to repent and instead just trying to make his life easier living apart from God. And now one of Cain's descendants four generations later. So it's quite some time that's passed. Lamech takes up two wives for himself. This is no accident the text mentions this. This man is in rebellion against God. Two wives for himself. What we see here is that things aren't getting any better. Did you notice that? You see, as time goes on, we would think, well, maybe, maybe this earth is just going to get better and better and better and better, and one of these days it'll be perfect and God's going to come again. Well, that's not going to happen. In fact, from now to chapter 6, what we're going to see in the beginning, it got worse and worse and worse and worse and more and more and more sinful until we find, oh, really, only one man is righteous. That's Noah. That's what's going to, we're going to see him in chapter 6. So it's not one of these upward spirals. It's a downward spiral. And this is one of those indications. This guy took, takes two wives for himself. Now down to verse 23, we see that Cain not only had, I'm sorry, Cain's descendant Lamech, not only had a disdain for the institution of marriage as God designed it, but he also has a disdain for life. In verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, and that's a problem already, isn't it? He said to his wives, Ada and Zilha, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech, give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. This is poetry. It's the same person. The man, it's the same person that he's killed. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. This man not only brags about the fact that he's got two wives, he brags about the disdain he has for marriage, but he brags about killing a man. At least Cain simply refused to confess and take responsibility for the murder of Abel. But this guy writes what Old Testament scholars refer to as a taunt song about his murder. Even in sports now, they have a penalty for taunting. You know, if a receiver catches the ball and he kind of throws the ball at the defender, then they flag him for a personal foul. That's unsportsmanlike conduct. This fellow writes a taunt song about his sin. So things aren't getting any better, are they? And then he has the audacity to call upon God for more mercy than God gave Cain. You see, Cain was to be avenged sevenfold. This guy wants to be avenged seventy-sevenfold for his sin. This Lamech's a real jewel, isn't he? He is the poster child for what happens when you don't master sin. When you let sin master you. He's the poster child for the fact that sin is not benign. So what we've learned in the first 15 verses, now we're seeing come to play. We're seeing it played out 
in these last verses of the chapter. In the meantime, the offspring of Cain, and actually the offspring of Lamech, are busy creating the implements of civilization. We see that in in verses 21 and 22. There's nothing wrong, again, with, with implements that make life easier. Musical instruments are mentioned. There's nothing wrong with musical instruments. I love music. I love it very much. Don't, don't understand some aspects of it, but I know good music when I hear it. And there's nothing wrong with musical instruments. Nothing at all. But the problem again comes when those are a substitute that takes priority over the submission and the worship of God. Now the contrast as we close our time out together today. A very severe contrast. In verse 25, Adam had relations with his wife again. Remember here, this is not necessarily sequential. We're not saying that Adam had a relationship with his wife again and she bore this son, Seth, after all the stuff with Lamech. This could have occurred much earlier and probably did. So this is not in in a strict chronological order. It's in a thematic order. Adam had relations with his wife again. She gave birth to a son and named him Seth. Named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in the place of Abel, for Cain killed him. I think she's, re- she's remembering back to that time where God promised her in Genesis 3.15 that one of her offspring would be the Messiah. The offspring of the woman would be the Messiah. So I think she's remembering that, and perhaps she may think it's Seth. We've, we find out it's not Seth. But verse 26 is the key verse to understanding, I think, the contrast, and perhaps even the whole chapter, the message of the chapter, or this, I'm sorry, the last half of the chapter. Seth... And to Seth, to him also a son was born. His name was Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. In spite of what we might think based upon the majority of this chapter, the murder of Abel by his brother Cain, uh, settling in a civilization apart from the blessing of God, the making of instruments to make life easier as a priority over worshiping God, this man this jewel of a fellow who kills, takes two wives in violation of God's commandment there and then also kills someone, you might get the idea in that, over most of the chapter that there were no godly people on the earth. Maybe Adam and Eve were there and they were wringing their hands and thinking, look at what's happened to my children as that happens from time to time. But there were godly people on the earth at this time. We should make a note here because it's going to be very important in the lesson that we have next that the text doesn't say that all the descendants of Seth were righteous or that all the descendants of Cain were unrighteous and wicked, but verses 25 and 26 form a literary contrast to what has come before. Seth's line begins to call upon the name of the Lord. Calling upon the name of the Lord is an important phrase in Genesis, and it can mean to make an exclamation containing the name of the Lord. In Hebrew, it would have been something like, Hallelujah. The Yah part of Hallelujah is the Lord. And the first part means praise. So that's when we say Hallelujah, praise the Lord. So it could mean something like that. So when people call upon the name of the Lord, it could be just speaking His name in a wonderful manner. But more likely, it is, as an Old Testament scholar of a previous generation, Klaus Westermann wrote, calling upon the name of the Lord was equivalent to preaching about the Lord. Abraham will go into different places and he will call upon the name of the Lord. Well, when he's doing that, he's proclaiming the Lord. He's preaching about the Lord. 
Westermann had a very great influence on many professional lives of Old Testament scholars, including a man many of you know, Ron Allen, who's spoken here many a time. Westermann was a, a very serious influence on Ron Allen. But to call upon the name of the Lord is to proclaim the greatness of God, and put it another way, it's worshiping God. So the contrast is, at least on the whole, the descendants of Cain were not calling upon the name of the Lord. They weren't worshiping him. They were just trying to make life better while they're here. And the descendants of Seth, while not perfectly, not in a, in a complete sense by any means, but at least in a general sense, the descendants of Seth, while they were, too were interested in civilization and making life easier for themselves, they didn't do it as a priority. And that's what we have to come face to face with as we close out our time today. Some had as their priority ensuring the comforts of life as they lived in rebellion against God. Others had as their priority the worship of God. Summing this up, we all enjoy the comforts of life. The comforts of life are not so much the issue. It's the priority of worshiping God. By the time that we get to chapter 6, we'll find that those who are in rebellion far outnumber those who are worshiping God. You know that story, I think, already. The comforts of life are important. But they are insignificant when compared to the worship of God. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the day that you've made and the comforts that we enjoy. We thank you for them. In fact, Father, we would pray humbly that you don't take them away from us. We don't deserve them. We certainly place them in a position of priority over you far too often. And Father, even as believers, we do this. So help us today, through your indwelling Holy Spirit, make the proper application of this passage and, and make you our priority. To, to make you the focus of our lives and to worship you well, Heavenly Father. We'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.